0: Support comes from the San Juan Islands. Spring in the San Juans can provide time to slow down and savor the scenery of quiet beaches, hiking, biking, and whale watching on Lopez, Orcas, and San Juan Island and Friday Harbor. Learn more at com. Set your mind to island time.
1: You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. I did a thing last year that I thought... I would never be able to do. I bought a home. It was only possible thanks to a significant family gift, and it happened right before mortgage rates went way up. I definitely did not get in on those historic sub-3% rates. And looking back, I feel incredibly grateful and honestly a little guilty because it feels like I was the very last millennial on the good ship homeowner as it was leaving the harbor for the foreseeable future. Interest rates for a 30 year fixed mortgage are currently hovering around 7.5%. Plus, according to The Economist, American home prices have risen 40% since 2020. Combine all these factors, and you have a recipe to put homeownership out of reach for most families. So what does this mean for generational wealth building, social dynamics, and the idea of the American dream? To dive into these questions and get a sense of the ripple effects of this difficult housing market, we've brought together a panel of experts. Anne Helen Peterson is an author and journalist, and she has a new podcast called The Culture Study. Hi, Anne. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. David Blum is a teaching associate with the Department of Urban Design and Planning at the University of Washington's College of Built Environments. Welcome, David.
2: Thank you for
0: inviting me.
1: And Daryl Smith is the executive director of Homesite, a community development financial institution. Hi, Daryl. Thanks for doing this.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: And Helen Peterson, I'll start with you because you're also one of those millennials that got on the good ship homeowner before it left the harbor, right? Are you feeling the same as me? Just kind of this weird mix of guilt and extreme privilege seeing all the other folks
3: in our age bracket who are left behind? Yeah, I really felt like I like squeezed in there. You know, the mm-hmm. the first house that I bought was in Missou- Missoula, Montana. And Managed to put together like $50,000. It was all we could scramble together to put down on this first home. And, you know, had to pay the um, mortgage insurance and all that stuff. But it was like, we did it. Oh, my gosh, we did it. And, you know, if we hadn't, you know, started saving just a little bit later, if come into the market a year later, two years later, that would have been out of reach. Both because of interest rates, but then also because of the skyrocketing market itself. And it just feels like luck, right? Like, so fortunate. I feel so fortunate. But at the same time, like, just because I'm two years older than someone, just because I was able to start saving a little bit earlier, just because I have a partner shouldn't mean that I should be a part of the housing market and someone else shouldn't be. Right. And now, you know, as we're watching
1: these interest rates and home prices continue to rise, interest rates have leveled off somewhat. A lot of folks are wondering if they're ever going to be able to get in, right? People who are slightly in a different financial position or in a uh, different uh, age cohort. How does seeing that really tangible example of something that was possible just a few years ago being pulled out of reach, do you think impact somebody? I mean, does it change how people today are thinking about building their lives, building their futures?
3: when they see homeownership moving further and further away. Yeah, I think that millennials in particular, and you know, younger Gen X as well and and people in their late 20s, like, we have been told that being able to buy a home is a sign of success, right? It is the American dream in some capacity. And in some ways, in America at least, that is true, right? This is how you build generational wealth. This is how you, you know, a 30-year mortgage is a stabilized rent for 30 years, right? Like that's wild. And it's how you guarantee that you can, in the future, set aside more money for you know your kid's education, paying for other things that are gonna go up, like childcare. And if you're not able to do that, if you have to continue to insulate yourself from skyrocketing rent prices, it's hard to plan for things like having a kid or starting a business, right? Like that is what homeownership promises is some modicum of stability and that seems out of reach. So again, yeah, I think that like it's destabilizing for a lot of people who thought if I just do all the things I'm supposed to do, then I will be able to to reach this, you know, this pinnacle of adulthood, which is entering the housing market.
1: Yeah, like Folks have checked off all these boxes, they've put together some savings, they've built credit, they've done all these things, and now they're confronted with a market that's completely out of their control. These are macroeconomic conditions that are dictating what folks can do to build their future. Um, Daryl Smith with HomeSight, how do you feel hearing this conversation so far with Anne, this idea that millennials, Gen Z, you know, folks who haven't been able to purchase a home so far, they've had to change their expectations about the future.
0: Yeah, I think everything that that Anne said is, is correct. And it has been an, an incredibly challenging market for many people the last couple of years. You have a perfect storm of higher interest rates, very few starter homes on the market, very few homes, period, because folks don't want to sell because then they have to buy something else in this really difficult interest rate environment. So you have a bit of a double whammy. And in Seattle, King County, just to remind folks, context-wise, the median home price in Seattle, King County is about $750,000, right? So if that's the median, um, that's really tough for a lot of people. So what I want to bring into the conversation, though, is just a little bit of a historical perspective as well, uh, that... For many people, not just millennials, but for many people, this has been out of reach for a long, long time. I want to bring in historically that we've had racially restrictive covenants across the state of Washington. We've had redlining in most American cities. So, this idea that the ability to buy a home has been easier for everybody across the board simply isn't true. So, we want to talk a little bit about what are the things we need to be doing as an organization and as frankly as a society to. Make the the advantages of home ownership, the things that Anne was talking about, more widely available for more people because it is very much the basis in, in the United States how families do build wealth and be able to pass that wealth on to generations and to do things like send a kid to college, survive a catastrophic health emergency, start a small business—all of the things we we hold dear and and place value on—many of those can be tied to home ownership. So we should get into that.
1: Yeah, and I think that's such an important point that the expectation of purchasing a home and purchasing where you want and and when you want, it's so tied with privilege in a lot of ways, because as you said, many communities, many uh, people have not had that privilege. Daryl, Homesite is a community development financial institution or CDFI. What does that mean? What is the kind of work that you do to try to get folks who have traditionally been disadvantaged into home ownership?
0: Great question and thank you for it. So CDfis were started really on the heels of the civil rights movement and community development financial institutions have a mission, they're nonprofit organizations as is home site with with a mission to actually help families, low and moderate income families build generational wealth in our instance through home ownership. So we build homes and we're a mortgage lender across the state of Washington with a variety of loan products that are different from what banks would typically do. So for example, our credit score requirement is lower than a bank's. We require one percent down for a mortgage from home buyers, and we provide deep homebuyer education and one-to-one uh, HUD-certified counselors to work with our clients as well, so that they'll be successful with their mortgages. So the idea is, as a nonprofit organization, as a lender, we don't we're, we're governed, but not quite by the same set of circumstances and rules that a traditional commercial bank would be. We are supposed to by charter serve low and moderate income communities, communities of color across the state of Washington. So CDFIs really were born to fill in the blank where financial institutions were not serving low and moderate income and particularly community color, communities of color very well. So that's our mission. That's what we do. And uh, we think it's incredibly important work.
1: How are your clients being affected right now by these rising interest rates? Is it affecting what you can offer uh, people who are looking to buy? What's what's going on with your um, folks who are trying to get into the market um, in this climate?
0: It's been incredibly difficult. We We had another great year of lending, but to be honest with you, folks that are purchasing in the quote regular market have really been squeezed because as those prices go up and interest rates go up and there's less inventory in the market for the clients that we happen to serve, there are fewer and fewer choices. And the real difficulty is the gap, the gap between what someone would qualify for and what the home is priced at. That's the same for everyone, right? But for the clients we serve, there are a couple of factors. One, we provide lots of different flavors, if you will, of down payment assistance. Those act essentially as second mortgages that don't have a payment due for 30 years. They accrue interest, most of them, a small amount, but there's no payment due for 30 years. The idea is to try to close the gap. The challenge is many of our clients are not bringing a bucket, if you will, of money with them as down payment into that transaction. So closing the gap for us is really challenging in the market that we exist in. So we have to work really, really hard with our partners, like Habitat for Humanity, Homestead Community Land Trust to provide mortgages for those families that are purchasing in those programs because there's an additional subsidy that can close the gap a little further. But to be honest, it is really difficult, no doubt about it.
1: So, so far, we've been talking about some of the obstacles that are keeping people away from home ownership. That includes these rising interest rates, uh, the rising uh, cost of housing historic uh, disadvantages, historic redlining and other structural disadvantages. I want to talk about housing stock as well. And for that, I want to bring in David Blum uh, with the University of Washington. Uh, David, what are you seeing in terms of the housing supply, which, of course, because, you know, in coastal cities, especially we've been seeing this crunch, we know is is not sufficient, right, for the number of folks who Uh, are looking to get into homes.
2: Thank you, Libby. Um, I see this from a rather narrow point of view, which is really summed up in one word, supply. In my experience, both through study and actual real estate development, particularly in the Northwest, I think that the constraint on supply is the fundamental problem and that all these other attributes of the problem won't help in the macroeconomic sense. Supply has been constrained, in my opinion, I'm speaking only for myself, not the University of Washington, by an artificially complex, highly legalistic, and enormously bureaucratic regulatory process that starts with the one word of zoning. And whether it's Nolan Gray's recent book, Arbitrary Lines, or just people in the business like myself who are trying to get building permits, none of this is new. This has been a long-standing accumulation of regulations that have driven most home builders. And please remember that most home homes in America were constructed in the private sector by small companies, very much an entrepreneurial enterprise of a few people meeting each other, finding some land. And yes, capital was a constraint, particularly to people of color. But I would argue vociferously that the regulatory environment is far, far more detrimental. So in a city like Seattle, the overwhelming majority of building permits are issued for the construction of rental housing. If you can't build because it's not legally permissible zoning or it takes so long, i.e. three years to pull a building permit, nobody will do it. Even if they're altruistic, idealistically driven like we are in a new company we started, it's not possible to do physically, legally, financially, not possible to do. In a strong market like the Northwest, why is that the case? People want to live here. They want to own homes. People are moving here. And yet it's not even a constraint. It has destroyed the fundamental process of building at volume.
1: David, I know Daryl wants to jump in here. We're going to get his reaction in just a second. What are we talking about in terms of numbers, of the number of homes that need to be built, either in Washington state, in the Puget Sound region, or nationally? I mean, how far behind are we to have a healthy housing market?
2: From what I read, the United States is 5 million houses short of market. Market. Get a mortgage, buy a house. Not Government subsidy, not publicly funded, just the market of capitalism. Five million houses short, and according to the governor of this state, we're a million housing units short of market in a state of, what, nine million people?
1: Yeah, so that's underlying everything, is what you're saying.
2: It's 100% underlying the difficulty. And whether we're talking about local or other regulatory barriers, they're all piled one on top of each other. And if you really understand it, if you're in the game like we are, trying to pull a building permit, good luck, because there's very little chance that you will stay the course. Not the physical, on paper, administrative process, but all of it together. When you layer it together, hardly anybody will do it and that's proven in the numbers just look at production of housing
0: for sale not housing for rent
1: daryl smith with home site your reaction to that
0: i think um turning to the supply side of the issue is is critical as well and, and david's turned our attention to some of those challenges we are also a developer we are a builder of homes for sale we've never built a home for rent And in the ecosystem, the housing ecosystem here in Seattle and the Northwest, I would call it an unhealthy system. So when I think about supply, I put a slightly finer point on it in that we are trying to encourage developers like Homesite and others to look at Different rungs of the ladder. We're missing the first three, four, five rungs of the ladder. We're trying to get a development over the finish line right now, which is a limited equity cooperative. It looks like a condominium, except it's a co op. There aren't many of them here in the Northwest, frankly. We're trying to get more lenders involved to push the effort to create other forms of multifamily housing. And we are in an education process to talk about the fact that this style of living can be very favorable for individuals and families, right? If we don't have the missing rungs on the ladder, for example, the first house I bought right here in my Columbia City neighborhood in 1994 cost 99,000 bucks. It was a starter home, right? That's a home today that probably runs $800,000. We need to produce more homes at a level that regular folk and families can get into because without those first rungs on the ladder, all the pressure is is upward like that $99,000 house I bought so many years ago, right? So I'll bring in one other piece around the idea of supply. Homesite is a proud member of the Black Home Initiative Network. It's a network of 80 partners that are looking at the supply and demand side of the issue, looking at regulatory, zoning, all of the issues. How do we create to reach a goal of 1,500 new Black homeowners here in Western Washington because homeownership lags among African-American families in the state by about half? Half of the black families in Washington state have zero net worth because they've never been able to cross that barrier and achieve home ownership. So, we need to create a lot more housing units for sale so that folks can get into housing and eventually trade up. So, it does go towards some of the things that David is talking about. We do have a major shortage of housing, but we need to think about how do we stratify that? How do we address the layers of entry level affordable home ownership opportunities? BHI is working on that, and that's a really a critical factor.
1: David, I'll get to you in just one second. I wanted to bring Anne back into the conversation because I know, Anne, you've been reporting on these alternate ways that people are getting into home ownership, not just purchasing a single-family home on their own. Uh, what did you find and what are some of the benefits and drawbacks of this you know, alternative style, these, these more creative solutions?
3: Yeah. I mean, people buy with their best friend. They buy, you know, a whole family might go in with another family and buy a home where there are two separate living spaces, right? So maybe not a two-unit home, but one where that's that's easily achievable. Or you buy with your mom, you buy with your brother. And maybe you don't have that total privacy that I think we fetishize to some extent in the United States, or that expansiveness that is the dream of like, you know, a 4,000 square foot home, but you have a house and also you have built in community. And I think that actually speaks to a desire that I hear in my age group, especially amongst people who are taking care of kids or who are also taking care of aging loved ones. We need we need like infrastructure of care in the same way that we need, you know, this other infrastructure, like we need an ability to get into the, the housing market in some way and build wealth. So this does both. And I think that people should actually be more expansive in how they're thinking about how they can achieve something like homeownership, particularly since this market, at least in this moment, is not going to change for a while. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. And as you've
1: mentioned before, getting into a fixed rate mortgage, that is a stable housing payment that you are not going to get um, you know, your landlord increasing your rent and pricing you out of your, your unit. So even with that communal living aspect, you do add that benefit of home ownership and a certain amount of wealth creation along with it. David, you wanted to react to Daryl's comments on um, ways to increase uh, home ownership among uh, the African-American community and then also uh, the supply side. Uh, go ahead and, and um, jump in.
2: Yes, I think everything Daryl's saying is absolutely correct. I'm talking about trying to scale the home building industry. We built more housing here in several hundred years in this country, predominantly for white people, we understand that, than the Europeans built in 2,000 years. We did that because the market can work if there's a reasonable amount of regulation. We're talking about a million housing units in the state of Washington. Think about that number, which came from the governor himself. Okay, You can't get to scale unless there's a wholesale revision of land use, i.e. zoning, which is now happening thanks to House Bill 1110 that the state legislature passed last June, which requires all cities over a size population, I think it's 75,000 to change some aspects of their zoning, as they have done in Minnesota and Oregon and California. And with that, the Yes in My Backyard movement turns from this very insular, protective view, somewhat aligned with what Ann is saying about this fetish of homeownership, to a more expansive view. Why does the typology of housing in America have to only look like it's looked like since 1940, it doesn't. And if the zoning would permit all the other typologies, which those three other states do, this is not rocket science. People have been building townhouses, duplexes, quads, fives, eights for a long time, or the other variation like Daryl's saying, people would build and buy them. We are so far behind at the scale we need that Anything else is simply, in my opinion, tinkering at the edges. And it will change in the state of Washington, a little late perhaps, but it will get better. It's going to take a while. It requires political will. And the legislature did that last June. So kudos to them.
1: Daryl, roughly 67 percent of Americans own their home Now, that's a higher percentage than a lot of European countries where there's more of this philosophy of, you know, renting permanently or, um, you know, just not fetishizing, as we've been (laughs) saying, the white picket fence and the traditional single family home. Um, But American tax code advantages home ownership. You know, you can deduct your mortgage interest payment, for example, Um, but if These conditions continue, you know, the housing shortage worsens, um, high interest rates are around for the foreseeable future, costs are going up. When the interest rates come down, there's just going to be a glut of demand that's going to drive costs up, um, a lot of folks are projecting. Um, Will things change, do you think? Will there be a more expansive view of the American dream, no longer built around that Traditional single-family home idea of what success looks like, and is that a good thing?
0: I, I think I think it is so deeply ingrained in sort of the American psyche, uh, the the idea of of ownership and and sort of having your plot of land up, uh, throw your tomatoes in that it may be difficult to completely leave that notion. Again, when I when I think about the 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 idea of of ownership and how that can affect a family and a community, frankly. I'm not sure that that's ever really going to, to go away. What we really need to do is think about the givens that you talk about, if those come to pass, and we've been seeing that of late, what are the strategies we need to actually counterbalance that? As David talks about, how do we unleash the private market to create more housing typologies, more different styles of homes for families, How do we unleash the market to create affordable home ownership opportunities? We're not going to solve this if we just go out and build a bunch of McMansions, right? We need multifamily housing. We need townhomes. We need cooperatives. We need the the land trust model, Habitat for Humanity. We need everybody at the table to solve this. And frankly, we need to really do a much better job around land use, around zoning laws, and around appraisal. The appraisal industry needs some help right now to think about valuation. So we need to look at all corners This is why the Black Home Initiative Network is a multi-pronged approach, a seven-point plan to address all of these issues, not the least of which is how do we get construction financing to also be healthier in that ecosystem to help the private market, not just folks like Homesite, but many others to produce the housing we need.
1: And any final thought on this idea of shifting the idea of the American dream away from what we've traditionally had in our postcard view of what it should be?
3: I this is a hard one because I think that <laughs> there is something to be said for the stability that homeownership can offer. Yeah. And I think that forcing millions of Americans to just like come up with a different understanding of what satisfaction looks like simply because we haven't caught up policy wise, right? Like I, I think we gotta be better. And I think that we've offered some really great ideas about how that can happen. Um But I also think that we have to, as a nation, decouple our understanding of achievement from owning a house. Owning a house does not make you happy necessarily. It can offer stability, which can offer happiness. But anyone who's had to take care of a home can tell you that it is not immediate happiness. (laughs) Be right back, I gotta go clear my gutters. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta pump my septic system. Yeah. I don't Um, really think
2: it's a matter of philosophy. I don't think it's a matter of values. I think it gets back to what Daryl's saying. If you can't build wealth through home ownership for any of the number of historic, racist, and other policies, and now you could if there was something to buy in a price range you could afford, that is the magic of a market. If you constrain the market artificially, which has been done perhaps in inadvertently or deliberately, I'm not equipped to say, the results are exactly what you're seeing today. This didn't happen overnight. And it's not getting better. It's getting worse until the state tells the municipal government, zoning is a local matter, to fix it. Well, let's see what happens. Let's see how much they do fix what they've already created this problem. They know how to fix it. They don't need the state to tell them. So go fix it and fix it now because this endless conversation delays and further reduces the market's ability to bring new housing to the public. It's, it's a business venture. It's not about philosophy. People want to live somewhere that creates wealth like everybody else in a capitalist system. That's how it works. People don't rent in Europe out of philosophy. They rent because they there is nothing to buy and hasn't been anything to buy for a very long time. It's not about philosophy. It's about the market. And we have destroyed much of that at the local level of home building, very obviously.
1: It also feels like you're touching on this idea of wealth building. Uh, Daryl, just final thoughts on this, that for most Americans, your home is going to be your largest asset that you ever own, and it's going to be your biggest appreciator of wealth. And we've talked about the historic disadvantages that have prevented uh, families of color from building that wealth generationally. I mean, are we in a climate right now where that possibility is, again, being pulled out of reach? And and what is the long-term impact of that? It, it seems really hard to think about um, folks right now trying to get in, not able to, and then the ripple effects down the line in their lives of not being able to build that wealth.
0: Well, for the first time, uh, the state of Washington is really taking a national lead. And last year, our legislature passed the Covenant home Ownership Account, which which is the first really in the nation to try to address some of the the racist covenants that were in place that literally were explicit. It was surgical. You know, you may not sell to a fill in the blank person on this, this lot, for example. So you constrained housing, you combine that with redlining, which pretty much all American cities had, this was complicit. The United States government, you know, the FHA, I mean, the real estate industries, there was complicity in terms of the constraint of housing, the inability for many families, not just African-American, but others, to purchase, right? And so we need to we need to rectify that and frankly catch up. Because you know, we all do better when we all do better. So the idea that we can spread the advantages of home ownership and what comes with it, stability financially, the ability uh, to, you know, as I talked about, start a business, send a kid to college, all of those things were behind in many areas. And the government had a, a direct, responsible role in that. So now we have an opportunity right this is why even though it's challenging in this market has been really difficult for so many i'm very hopeful i'm very hopeful going forward that if we can figure this out for communities that have had the deepest disparities the deepest gulf in terms of the racial wealth gap for example one example not to mention low and moderate income families all across the state then we can actually make real changes and begin to address some of what David is talking about, where housing isn't just available for the very few and the lucky that had a bag of money because their grandparents' parents were able to pass up wealth. But now we can create this opportunity for many folks, frankly, like like I was. I moved to Seattle as a, a young kind of stage actor with not a lot of money. My wife and I were able to cobble a couple of bucks together, get gifted funds, get an FHA loan, And we purchased a home for 99,000 bucks, total fixer, but it changed our lives, right? We need to be able to make sure that opportunity is available for as many people as possible, particularly those that have been denied that opportunity. And that's what we're starting to do through BHI, the Black Home Initiative Network, among other efforts, so that we can actually have a healthy ecosystem uh, to what David is talking about.
1: Daryl Smith is the executive director of Homesite, a community development financial institution. You also heard from David Blum, a teaching associate with the Department of Urban Design and Planning at the University of Washington's College of Built Environments, and Anne Helen Peterson, author and journalist with a new podcast called The Culture Study. Thank you so much to everybody for joining this conversation. It was a real pleasure to hear from all of you.
0: Thank you. Thank
2: you for inviting us.
1: Thanks for listening to Soundside. And hey, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org.
0: At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your
2: podcasts.